welcome to another session of the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy Global Summit. I'm Dr. Gita Bade, a psychiatrist and psychedelic psychotherapist practicing in New York City, and I'll be your co-host for today's session. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo. Welcome, Dr. Garcia Romeo. Hello. Thank you for joining the summit. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. But first, I'd like to share a bit about your background with our audience, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Is that okay with you? Sounds good. Okay, very good. Dr. Albert Garcia Romeo is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. His current research interests include clinical applications of psychedelics, real-world real drug use patterns, diversity in science, and the role of spirituality in mental health. He is a founding member of the John Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research and the International Society for Research on Psychedelics. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I have so many questions to ask you. I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about psilocybin because most of your research have involved working with that molecule. What have you learned about this medicine and how does it work with psychedelic-assisted therapy? Uh, yeah, I mean, those are huge questions. We don't really know the answer to in, in some regards in terms of how these substances work in conjunction with talk therapies. Um uh, a lot of what we do now um, harkens back to what was already done decades ago in the 1960s and 1970s uh, using uh, psychedelics in clinical research settings um, in a sort of psychedelic therapy model, uh, which typically uh, involves some wraparound preparation before the dosing occurs, uh, as well as integration afterwards. Um, and, you know, what a lot of the early work was showing was that uh, using high dose psychedelics, uh, back in those days, they were primarily studying LSD. Um, we've been focusing more so on psilocybin, uh, but the results have been very congruent. Uh, and, you know, we've been looking at a lot of the same targets uh, that were studied back in the 1960s, uh, primarily uh, substance use disorders, uh, palliative care settings with patients with terminal illness. Um, and more recently, we've been looking at major depression. Uh, and I would, you know, really just to summarize, say that um, what we found um, recently is very consistent with what was found in the early days of the research, which is um, using high doses of these drugs appears to be quite safe. Uh, there also seems to be some uh, real therapeutic potential there uh, for helping people recover from substance use disorders and to deal with uh, existential distress that comes along with uh, end of life issues. Um and, you know, the major depression work is also uh, showing some promising signal for uh, reducing major depressive symptoms for months or up to a year after a couple of doses. And so obviously that's very different than the available therapies, uh, which typically require ongoing medication uh, in order to, you know, see some treatment efficacy. Uh, but we're getting, uh, you know, these long lasting effects, benefits from uh, high dose psilocybin. Uh, in conjunction with uh, wraparound care, uh, which, again, is, is very consistent with earlier uh, era of research. 
very exciting to hear you talk about such a breadth of knowledge and applications. You emphasize high dose. Could you say a little bit more about what the implications are for high dose treatment versus other doses? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about microdosing and a lot of interest in that. Um, so far, the clinical research has not really shown any sort of benefit for microdosing. Um, there's been kind of uh, a handful at this point of uh, small clinical trials that have used a double-blind placebo control st- uh, study design. And the ones that have uh, for psilocybin and for LSD have shown really minuscule types of effects and nothing that would necessary, necessarily, uh, you know, give you an idea that this was beneficial or helpful in any way. Um, I would say one limitation of that research is that it's been mainly done in uh, healthy, normal volunteers, so people who are not presenting with any clinical diagnosis. Uh, so they think there's a very good chance that if you're doing a, you know, a microdosing regimen uh, and study uh, with people who have some sort of condition, whether that be major depression, ADHD, you might see some actual uh, benefit there. But the studies that have been, been done in healthy people have not shown any any real benefit. So that's why I always talk about the high doses because people uh, will, I think, conflate what we're doing here, which is a high-dose therapy, with uh, this microdosing practice that's become very kind of popularized in the, um, in the media. And so when you talk about high-dose sessions, just one more point on that, is that likely to create what people are talking a lot about with ego dissolution kind of experience or states? Yeah, and you're not going to get that with a microdose either. And so you're going to get more of the uh, ego dissolution, mystical type or transcendent uh, experiences. Uh, you know, these types of spiritual or personally meaningful experiences, you know, really tend to happen at the higher end of the dosing threshold uh, for most people. Some people are more sensitive than others, but um, by and large, we're looking at doses, uh, you know, between 20 and 30 milligrams of psilocybin uh, or perhaps a little bit higher depending on the population, uh, and just using a few doses, maybe uh, anywhere between one and three administrations of the drug can seem to have long-lasting benefits for many people. That's amazing. That takes me into my next question, because I was really struck by the fact that you have a doctorate in transpersonal psychology. I'm wondering if you could explain to our audience what that discipline entails and how you were drawn into that area of study. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of my interest uh, in going into graduate studies to begin with was really kind of a dissatisfaction with uh, the limitations of Western psychology and feeling like uh, it was often very pathology oriented, um, kind of focusing on what was wrong uh, and not spending a lot of time on what could be developed, what were the virtues or positive side of psychology. Um, of course, we have more positive psychology you know, that has been developed over the last few decades, but um, in school, you know, there was a lot of pathology and diagnosis, uh, which I think is interesting and, and important, but um, it seemed to sort of cut off half of the spectrum of human experience. And also, uh, you know, the idea of altered states of consciousness and that there are different ways of being and thinking in, in the world that were valid was uh, really interesting to me and something that seemed to be discounted heavily by uh, Western psychology and, and philosophy in many ways, um, you know, this sort of uh, reification of uh, being awake, being sober and being rational as sort of the, the pinnacle of human thought and existence. Uh, whereas in many other cultures, there's uh, appreciation for 
altered states of consciousness, trance states, uh, the ability to think and feel differently, uh, which can sometimes be induced by spiritual practices, fasting, meditation, uh, or of course, the use of psychoactive substances like psychedelics. Uh, and so those are um, kind of things that drew me towards transpersonal psychology, um, which focuses not primarily on what the individual and their relationships are with other people around them, which you know, a lot of personal and interpersonal uh, psychological material can come up in that type of uh, Western psychology, but also bigger relationships between the person and their environment uh, and the person and uh, perhaps a spiritual uh, experience or a higher power uh, or just the cosmos in general. Uh, you know, thinking about um, people sort of from a broader lens or perspective uh, was what drew me to the transpersonal psychology. And it, you know, it felt like a good fit because it allowed me to uh, really explore widely, uh, including things like Eastern spirituality and, and philosophies, uh, as well as meditative practices and, and so forth that I felt uh, were really important to bring into the conversation. So it's really interesting how the roots of your current day work started very early in your career and some of your interests have been long-standing. How, how has that background and that kind of perspective informed your research or how does it play into current research? Perhaps we could talk about the perspectives, but also what you're doing right now and how it's really shifted your way of thinking about research in general. Uh, well, I wasn't planning to be a researcher. I was, uh, I mean, I did research as part of my uh, graduate program, but, you know, I was mainly hoping to work in teaching, education, and, you know, uh, more sort of uh, spiritual guidance type settings for people in palliative care or people dealing with other types of existential issues. Um, and I happened to get in contact with some of the folks at Hopkins at a at a conference, actually, and um, that led to conversations and then the research position where I find myself. Uh, but I, I definitely think my background uh, in transpersonal psychology informed the way that I approach research in a number of ways. Uh, you know, one is that I, I definitely uh, have an appreciation for the qualitative component of what's, uh, what's happening, um, which is often not captured uh, in any high fidelity manner by uh, quantitative instruments that we use in psychology or neuroscience. Uh, so I, while I think it's important that we study the brain and that we uh, take measurements of things like personality and behavior, um, there's also a very rich phenomenological component to people's first-person experience that's often kind of left to the side. And I think bringing that into the fold uh, is really important to inform not just psychedelic therapies, but just psychology in general and, and how the mind works. Uh, so that's something that I've tried to incorporate in the research that we do here is to ask people about their experiences uh, and to, you know, presume that they're the experts on their own experience uh, and that they, they can provide us a lot of insight on that. Uh, and so using qualitative and mixed methods, I think, is a strength uh, that comes from a sort of more uh, interdisciplinary and transpersonal background. Um, and that's that's very unique and very rich. And just to kind of um, open it up a little bit for those who don't quite perhaps have familiarity with some of the terms you're talking about, you're really talking about, I think, developing and cultivating tools to describe what the experience of the inner world states are and what someone's experience of reality or different states of consciousness really looks like and that the actual experience itself matters in addition to measurements and 
reduction of symptoms, right? That's really a very, a very different perspective than we're usually thinking about with science, I think, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of objective science is trying to get to what can be measured and observed in the objective uh, manner in the, you know, in the three-dimensional real world, if you will, out here. Um, but so much of our lived experience is happening within our psyche. Um, there's a lot that is difficult to measure from the outside, but that a person is able to, to directly experience uh, through their first person uh, subjective uh life experience. And so that's a very rich area that I think is often, again, uh, either discounted or just left out of the conversation that can really help us to understand what a person is going through if they're dealing with a psychopathology or if they're recovering from some sort of uh, mental health condition uh, or if they have some sort of anomalous or other transformative type of experience, what that was like for them and and how that sort of uh, unfolded. Uh, because otherwise, if we're looking from the outside, I think we can miss a lot of important facets. That's wonderful. And you mentioned that meditation and meditative states has always been an interest of yours in altered states. I'm wondering how you think meditation itself intersects with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy for healing or self-actualization or spiritual evolution, assuming the three are related. Yeah, I think you know meditation and psychedelics are both very powerful um, tools that we have uh, to help us change the way that we think and feel. And, you know, uh, meditation certainly requires a lot of discipline and practice for many people to get to some of the um, more marked benefits that can come from a long-term practice. Uh, so I think that there's something to be said for the uh, shortcut, if you will, that psychedelics can provide to help people uh, feel very profoundly different and think very profoundly differently uh, in a short amount of time. Um, and then that can then I'll give them sort of a sense of where they might want to continue to explore uh, by engaging in a regular meditative practice. Uh, but, you know, in terms of the overlap, I think one of my favorite studies uh, that's been conducted, and you know, there's one really good study that was done here at Hopkins and 75 individuals uh, where uh, people were put into three different groups and uh, 25 people per group. And in each group, they either received a very low dose of psilocybin, a placebo dose with our standard wraparound care. Um, some people got a high dose of psilocybin with our standard wraparound care, which includes preparation and integration. And then there was a sort of third group that received the, the highest level of support. And in that group, the uh, 25 people were able to have high dose psilocybin, have our regular supportive care, but then also engage in optional uh, group talks or conversations. Uh, and these were all healthy individuals who were coming in with a desire to learn a meditation practice. And so what they did was they came into the study, they took up a meditation practice that was standardized, that we had them all sort of learn through the beginning of the program. And then they went through the three different conditions of the study and what we found was very interesting, which was that uh, the people who had the highest levels of support, including the group support, or what from a Buddhist perspective you might think of as a sort of sangha or spiritual community component, um, were the ones who had the highest uh, shifts in terms of their ability to uh, improve you know, certain uh, measures of things like uh, meaning in life, forgiveness, uh, spirituality, 
Uh, and so that was even higher than uh, the group who had our standard sort of uh, supportive care model with the high dose psilocybin. And, you know, the, of course, there was a, a role being played by the dose of the drug. The lower dose uh, group often did not show many of the same benefits because uh, they were receiving the placebo. But what I think is interesting is that the people who were uh, in this highest level of support were the ones who ended up getting the most benefit, even more than the ones who got uh, standard care with a high dose of the drug. And so it really shows that there was something there about, um, you know, again, the sort of uh, more than just the personal, but really their set and setting and their ability to engage with others, to talk about their psychedelic experience, to talk about their meditation practice, that sort of enriched that entire process for them and ended up leading to them having a, a more engaged practice uh, in terms of spending more time doing it and feeling like they were getting more out of it. Um, and that's just one study. There have been other very good studies done in Switzerland uh, and in um, South America looking at use of uh, psychedelics like psilocybin and ayahuasca uh, in uh, spiritual retreat settings. And so, you know, just as indigenous people have used these substances for a long time as part of a spiritual practice or part of their sort of uh, religious and spiritual lives, uh, I think, you know, as outside of the clinical work that we do, you know, treating major depression or working with substance use disorders, um, there's something very valuable there that uh, I think many people will feel drawn to uh, when they're exploring psychedelics, um, which is not just about uh, curing an illness, but uh, also about uh, exploring oneself and the nature of, of one's mind and perhaps a relationship with uh, higher power or whatever you want to call that. This gets really into, this is a really interesting study because it gets into wellness and enhanced wellness and capacity. It's not, you know, which is very different than how a lot of what we've been chatting about on this has been treatment of mental illness or suffering as opposed to an wellness enhancement measures. It's yeah, abs absolutely. You know, and I, and I think this is such an important thing that gets lost in the conversation frequently these days is that you know, because it's very oversimplified things. You know, I think of psychedelic use in three sort of broad piles, um, you know, one being medical therapeutic use, where there is, you know, a medical or psychological professional, where there is an intervention that's trying to be uh, curative or therapeutic towards a specific condition. But that's not necessarily the same as um, spiritual or traditional use, where people are using this as a form of sacrament or a form of spiritual exploration. Uh, and it's not the same as a sort of third area that I think of, which is more recreational or sometimes psychonautic. People talk about being psychonauts and, you know, that's also exploratory in a way. Um, but, you know, we often malign the, the recreational, but, you know, having fun is important. Um, you know, enjoying ourselves is important. And, you know, people go to happy hours after work all the time and they do that type of thing and think of it as, a positive, generally speaking. And so when people go to, uh, you know, use psychedelics recreationally, I also think there can be value there. But it's just important not to conflate all of these different sort of uh, intentions that people may have when they approach this type of substance. Well, it's really nice the way you kind of categorize into these three overlapping but distinct categories and also recognize the benefits of each is what you're kind of really getting into. And also, I love in this study, you, you seem to be really tapping into knowledge that has existed for um, in all cultures, actually, over millennia, that in some ways that you are drawing on 
practices that have been used in traditions and in a way tapping into the wisdom that's already there instead of reinventing the wheel, which is really unique, I think. Yeah. And, you know, just like mindfulness-based stress reduction and those types of uh, secular Buddhist approaches, which try to bring in mindfulness or other um, Eastern spiritual traditions and practices, uh, you know, into Western psychology, I think that that study um, had its strengths. And, and as you said, really bringing in some of the wisdom from uh, different uh, schools of spiritual wisdom and different uh, wisdom traditions and trying to bring those to people, allow, allowing them to find what resonated with them. Um, but then also incorporating, you know, this sort of high dose psychedelic uh, regimen within that uh, to see how it could enhance or not, um, you know, that their experience of that process. It is a nice example of the contribution, of, you know, actually even the fusion of your past influences and your current scientific work coming together in this beautiful way. For those who haven't got a sense of what a high dose psilocybin experience is like experientially, could you try to explain what that experience could be like for someone who's never really had a sense of what that could look like for a patient experientially? For yeah, yeah no, it's, it's very difficult to describe. And I think that's one of the key features that's been identified is that they can be considered uh, paradoxical or ineffable. So, um, you know, beyond our kind of standard comprehension and language or description. Um, but, you know, there are certain key features that can come up uh, for people um, just in terms of understanding the pharmacology of these drugs, um, they are altering perception. They're changing the way that our five senses work, and that is going to just change the way that we feel because the way that we experience ourselves in the world is directly related to what we see, what we're listening to, how we smell and taste things, how we feel in our body. Um, and so those signals start to come in uh, quite a bit differently uh, depending on the dose and where the person is at. Uh, in the drug experience. Um, and that can include perceptual changes like things look like they're moving, um, colors look brighter, um, sounds can become more vivid, um, there can be synesthesias or crosstalk between different sensory modalities. Uh, and, you know, that's the basis for a lot of what you think of as a sort of psychedelic artwork and, you know, the Paisley and tie-dye type of stuff that is often associated with the 1960s is that you know, these perceptual changes and uh, lava lamps and so forth. But I think that's just the sort of surface level um, where people begin to have those perceptual experiences. Um, I think where it becomes more profound is um, almost a more mind-bending sort of cognitive uh, changes, emotional changes that people begin to experience under the influence. And I can't say that there's just sort of one direction that this can take because uh, it can go in many different directions. Um, but one that has kind of appeared uh, in a fairly consistent manner is uh, these positive emotional states, um, feelings of uh, unity, feelings of uh, bliss, uh, profound love, gratitude, joy, um, you know, feelings of belongingness. Um, those types of feelings uh, can come up very uh, deeply for some people during the sessions. Um, they can have a, a very powerful type of transcendent experience under the influence that, uh, as you alluded to earlier, can even lead to feeling like their sense of self has dissolved completely and they've become interconnected with everything around them. Um, and that, you know, when we see that happen, uh, it can become, uh, it can be a very healing and, and transformative experience for many people. Um, 
but I, that's not the only type of experience that people can have. And again, I don't really want to paint that as a pinnacle, like the top of the mountain and everything else kind of falls underneath it. Um, but what you could expect or what someone who doesn't know what these experiences like, how vast and varied and how dramatic they are, really, listening to it's quite a dramatic experience to undergo. No wonder you need preparation and care and support. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that can be as uh, as blissful or euphoric as it can be, you know, to feel connected with everything. For some people, it can be terrifying. And, uh, I, you know, you can think of yourself being a sort of water balloon dropped into the ocean. And um, as, as it is, you know, if that balloon were to sort of be punctured and you're to disappear in, into the ocean and, and merge with it, that can be very disorienting and frightening and anxiety provoking for many people. Uh, and sometimes depending on what situation they find themselves in, uh, you know, with the sort of perceptual distortions, the cognitive changes that are happening, the emotional ups and downs that can come with the drug, uh, people can find themselves in a panic. They can act in ways that could be dangerous. Um, they could become very disoriented. So yeah, it's, it's a huge range of experiences. Could you talk a little bit about the psychotherapy in the models you're using? You know, um, what, because you mentioned preparation, integration. Could you just give us a little bit run through of what the psychotherapy looks like in your protocols? Yeah, you know, and that depends very much on what the target is. If you're talking about indication, for instance, my colleague, Dr. Nali Gakasian is working with people who are struggling with anorexia nervosa. And so in those types of uh, settings, they're going to be talking a lot about um, food and eating and their history, uh, you know, developing the situation that they find themselves in. Um, whereas a lot of the work that I've been doing is focused on uh, treating substance use disorders, primarily uh, smoking cessation, trying to help people quit smoking. And, and you know, in those situations, we're using, uh, at the moment, uh, uh, kind of a manualized or standardized cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very straightforward, but I think helps provide people with some insightful tools about, you know, how they think about their smoking behavior um, what it gives them or what it does for them that's useful and how they're going to find alternative avenues of getting that once they stop smoking. Uh, so we're really, you know, using uh, approaches that have been kind of tried and true in, uh, you know, the talk therapy arena and trying to incorporate that with the high dose psychedelic to sort of boost or enhance the person's motivation and sense of self-efficacy to be successful in making a big change like that like quitting smoking, changing how they're eating, um, or in overcoming major depression. Really, it's branded current ongoing treatment protocols with psychedelic high-dose sessions and the work you're doing. Uh, yeah, well, and there's lots of approaches, and people have hypothesized that many different approaches could be useful in these areas, like internal family systems, mindfulness-based uh, therapies, um, you know, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, so I think there's a lot of a, a lot for us to unpack and study further in terms of understanding what works best for different conditions and for different individuals. How important do you feel it is for psychedelic therapists to have had some expertise with transpersonal, transpersonal and non-ordinary states themselves or even psychedelic medicines themselves to do this work? Do you think that's necessary? I don't think it's necessary. I think it could be helpful. Um, there's a lot of ways to reach altered states of consciousness and um, using uh, psychoactive substances is not the only way. 
um, you know, certainly my entree was, was much more related to meditative practice where, um, I found a group uh, at college that was, you know, diving into that. But, um, I think there's a lot of ways to, to approach that, including just being in nature for me was another one of the kind of big shifts from that helped me see, uh, how different my mind can work in a, in a very, a different type of setting from where I grew up in a very busy city to you know, living in a, a very remote place in the woods for, for a long time. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think uh, Dr. Humphrey Osman, who coined the term psychedelic, and uh, he wrote this in a 1957 paper um, when he basically invented that word psychedelic. Uh, he also said, you know, people who plan to use these drugs clinically or in a research uh, would be wise to use them um, once or more than once before they administer them to others. And I think that his impetus for saying that is that it really gives a person a sense for how disorienting or how powerful the effects can be. Um, because if you are working with someone who's under the influence, I think it can be uh, easy to sort of uh, lose track of of quite how distorted their uh, experience can be compared to normal waking consciousness. What is your impression? Because you certainly have so much knowledge about mystical states and transpersonal states from so many different realms of experience um, with psychedelic medicines and without. How, how, what is your sense of how, how mystical experience itself informs healing? You know, I, I wish I had a better answer because I've been studying this for a while and I'm still not exactly sure. Um, one of the things that I've written before in a sort of uh, working hypothesis, and, and it's really based on clinical observation, is that um, you know, this model that we have, uh, in one direction is very kind of clear cut, which is for people who, uh, have a very traumatic experience, um, that could then, uh, you know, lead to ongoing problems, including, uh, you know, heightened anxiety response, uh, feeling over arousal, um, you know, having trouble, um, being calm and relaxed, uh, even in places that they know are safe. Uh, and then, you know, potentially developing, uh, uh, conditions like PTSD. And so we, you know, that's a pretty well established pathway, uh, in terms of our understanding of mental health for people developing pathology. But again, in the other direction, we don't really have good models. And, and I, especially not of these sort of, uh, big, uh, moments that happen in a discrete period, um, like a trauma, like a traumatic event that can be, you know, pinned down to one day. And what I've seen with people working in these studies is that uh, a high dose psychedelic experience can create these sort of mystical type effects, as well as other very powerful and meaningful experiences for them. Um, you know that is kind of isolated to that one day, but then can lead to ongoing benefits and, and can continue continue to give that person something valuable in terms of their mental health and well being. And so I, I think of it, the psych, you know, mystical type experiences and the psychedelic experiences uh, as being sort of like an inverse PTSD type of model. The antidote to a PTSD model. I've never heard it described that way, but that's a really interesting way of thinking about how one profound experience can have such a lasting impact in a virtuous cycle. Yeah, we, I mean, we, we, at least that was what we would hope. And, you know, certainly we're starting to understand more about the neurobiology of, of all of this. Um, you know, what's happening in the brain and we're seeing very interesting structural and functional changes, you know, at the level of the cells, at the level of the neuron. 
uh, as well as at the level of the whole brain uh, functional dynamics and networks uh, that I think are, again, kind of uh, consistent with what we were talking about before, you know, this uh, ego-dissolving experience, um, but also um, disruption or uh, alteration of well-worn patterns that our brains might get into in a pathological state, such as depression, where a person is often thinking uh, negative thoughts about themselves or the world, or uh, an addiction when a person is often fixated to think about a substance or, or using that substance. Um, by using these drugs to change the brain network dynamics, um, we're also, again, phenomenologically changing the sort of content of what they're thinking about and what their lived experience is like, such that perhaps that can help them sort of break out of those uh, patterns that have become unhealthy, uh, like a broken record, you know, it gets stuck. And uh, maybe being able to get out of that uh, broken record pattern for a moment can help a person to sort of break out of it longer term. So interesting, such a different way of thinking about mental problems, mental suffering, and how we've been trained as psychologists and psychiatrists to think about symptoms. It's so, so varied. You know, I've been doing a little bit of research on some of your work, and you have been involved in so many different studies um, with addiction, and some you've already alluded to. I'd love to hear more about one that really caught my interest was your fascinating study involving religious and spiritual leaders. And I know you just mentioned to me something about Alzheimer's, so I'd love to hear about both of those studies. Yeah, absolutely. And I shouldn't you know, take any sort of credit for those studies. Um, you know, those studies are being uh, conducted and run by, by other folks, but they're here at Johns Hopkins, also at NYU. I have been involved. I've been, you know, privileged to sit in sessions with religious professionals like priests uh, during their psychedelic experiences with high-dose psilocybin. And really the, the sort of point of that research is to examine how these experiences relate back to people from diverse religious and spiritual traditions um, and how that uh, impacts their ability to do their professional work, their role as um, spiritual advisors, as, you know, priests, rabbis, monks, nuns, whatever it may be, uh, you know, because uh, that really uh, – again, goes back to some of the early, very interesting research that was done at Harvard in 1963 by Walter Pankey and, uh, you know, others uh, where they were administering high-dose psilocybin during the Good Friday uh, service uh, at a chapel in uh, in Boston uh, to a bunch of seminary students. And Rick Doblin did a great follow-up, uh, you know, decades later, com- coming back to contact those original participants, some 25, I think, years or more later, asking them about you know, how these experiences impacted their spiritual life and their profession and finding that many of them continued, you know, down the line years later to uh, attribute to these experiences a great sense of personal meaning and um, as sort of uh, affirming their decision to move into clergy or to move into a religious uh, professional work as an important calling for them. Um, but yeah, that work is still kind of underway in the sense that the, the data collection has been done, the analyses are wrapping up, and um, what's happening now is just the, sort of the manuscript preparation where we're able to report the results. And Roland Griffiths, David Yaden, and other colleagues um, are kind of working on getting that uh, out the door hopefully this year. It's like a really far out study to get religious leaders and give them psilocybin just to be impact of mystical experience. It's also really interesting to hear you talk about spirituality because it does seem like psychedelics have really brought the notion of spirituality back into 
mental health. And it used to be a bit of a taboo subject. It's quite interesting because you use it very comfortably as a scientist. You know, I feel like it's a fundamental part of the human experience. And and obviously, you know, in secular and, and certainly in scientific arenas, you know, it can be a little bit of a dirty word. Um, because it is slippery. I mean, and, and, but I think that's similar to something like an aesthetic appreciation for beautiful artwork, which is you can't necessarily measure it or pin it down. You can't say this is the most beautiful painting. Um, you know, different people are going to have different experiences of something like that. Um, similar to spirituality, but yet it's something that every person I think can intuitively, uh, understand, you know, the sense of seeing something and feeling very deeply, um, the beauty or the, um, profound meaning of, of whatever that is. And uh, I think that that relates back to, you know, that sort of universal human experience that we all have as being fundamentally spiritual. We have this ability to happen to things that are bigger than ourselves. Um, and that's, I think, part of what, to me, spirituality means, uh, kind of in a very general sense. Um, but, you know, when we talk about just curing, you know, the mind or the body, uh, and not really considering the spirit, I think we do end up uh, missing out on something important. And so a person can be physically healthy and even potentially mentally healthy, you know, in a lot of standard uh, ways, but feel a sort of void or disconnect in other areas uh, that, uh, you know, I think can, can lead to problems. And so thinking of people holistically, um, you know, using an integrative framework, yeah, is important in, in the way that I conceptualize people, but just health in general. Just to try and get a sneak peek at some of the results. You mentioned you sat in some of the studies. Did you get an impression that the session material was different with your religious and spiritual, were there more religious motifs that you could say? Just even, I know yours hasn't been analyzed, compared to sitting in your, for example, your nicotine addiction or your cigarette smoking, smoking cessation study. So I, I should say I've only sat in a few of those sessions specifically for uh, the a religious professional study, but I've sat in dozens, over a hundred sessions for um, other types of studies, specifically uh, mainly for smokers, but other other types of studies as well. And I would say that for some of the um, smokers, the type of spiritual and religious content can come up very powerfully, but it's certainly not in the majority. Um, it's not something that is as common that um, I think does come up, at least in my sort of very uh, limited experience with the religious professionals, anecdotally, you know, these people spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, practicing their religious tradition, reading scripture, um, engaging in practices like prayer or meditation. And so I think for them, it's very uh, front and center in their minds. And so at least the experiences that I've witnessed, um, they definitely had uh, a very spiritual and religious uh, sort of content uh sort of baked in um but at the same time you also saw a lot of the same types of things that uh, other people might talk about which is experiences uh from the, their past you know important relationships like my grandmother or you know um things that happened when i was a, a child or a young adult and so i think you know all of those things are sort of fair game in, in these uh, sessions it sounds it's so fascinating the way you talk about the, your work it really brings it to life um could you say something about you mentioned to me you're doing work with alzheimer's alzheimer's and psilocybin that's really an, um, an interesting combination can you tell us more about what thinking is with that 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, that was an area that we got interested in a few years ago. Um, there's a, a kind of a confluence of reasons, but, um, you know, one of them is just a huge public health problem. Um, it's a kind of a growing issue. We've got very little that we know in terms of effective treatments, actually pretty much nothing. Um, there have been a few medications approved, uh, but I would say, you know, they're questionable at best in terms of their safety and efficacy at this point. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a big problem. We don't have a lot of solutions and we've been finding a lot of promising results with psilocybin across a number of different conditions. Uh, so that in itself kind of led us to say, well, at the very least, you know, just like in uh, patients with cancer, um, you know, this may not necessarily cure the cancer, but this could help uh, help reduce anxiety, reduce depressive symptoms, improve quality of life, which in itself would be valuable for patients with uh, Alzheimer's, mild cognitive impairment. Um, but uh, you know, the more interesting questions really started to open up with this new work that was being done in animals and cellular models over the last decade or so um, that shows that pretty clear signal for psychedelics, even a single dose of psilocybin, um, for instance, is uh, capable of producing these changes in the brain uh, at the structural level, including new connections in key regions like the frontal cortex, like the hippocampus, which we know are important for thinking and memory. And um, when you see that those changes are occurring, that these increased connections are happening, uh, even at that neuronal level, and not only that, but that they persist, uh, you know, Dr. Alex Kwan at Yale and uh, their team found, a, you know, really nice uh, results with one dose of psilocybin in mice uh, that continued to show increased synapses uh, and uh, dendritic spine density up to a month after that one dose of psilocybin. Uh, so that starts to, you know, turn the brain a little and say, well, what about these neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's being a big one? Um, where we know that a big part of that is this neuronal atrophy or the sort of pruning and falling away of those connections in key brain regions. Can we regrow those? Would that be helpful? Would that be therapeutic? Same with the brain network dynamics, which are much, uh, much more complex and a little over my head, to be honest. But um, there's, I think, a good rationale for saying uh, that kind of giving a person one of these types of psychedelic experiences um, when they're perhaps in the early stages of a, a dementia type diagnosis may sort of reignite certain memory and emotional processes that could be therapeutic and lead to either a slowing of the uh, disease progression or uh, potentially other therapeutic benefits. Uh, so that's really what we're testing out right now. I've been fortunate that we have, you know, some very uh, talented and uh, knowledgeable clinicians here like Dr. Paul Rosenberg, who's uh, one of my uh, research partners in that study who's been doing geriatric neuropsychiatry for a long time. Um, but yeah, that's an exciting area, just I think because of the great need that we know is is there. So. Oh, exciting, particularly because there aren't really great treatments for it. And also, it's such a novel way of thinking about the brain as well as these problems. Um, it's so exciting. Let me ask you a question. If you could design any psychedelic study in the world, what would that be for you, given your range of interests? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think if I wish I had more time, uh, you know, and luckily we've, you know, had a lot of for, uh, good fortune in terms of uh, being able to uh, get the requisite resources to do these studies, which are often very expensive and, and time intensive. But 
Um, in terms of, you know, my dream studies, the ones that we've been doing um, have been, you know, getting there. You know, this Alzheimer's study is a big one for me that I'm very interested in. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of work with addictions that is continuing to sort of uh, be a part of the field that develops. Um, and so I'm working with Matt Johnson and others on um, more uh, placebo-controlled trials of smoking cessation with psilocybin. Um, so really, I think that's the direction we need to go, which is just having bigger, uh, more well-powered, uh, more rigorous studies for um, these types of uh therapeutics to see how they work and then, you know, understanding the mechanisms better. And, and so, you know, I think we're kind of doing a lot of what I hope to be doing. Some of it could be scaled up more, but, um, you know, we just kind of need to take uh, one step at a time. So the Alzheimer's study, for instance, is quite small, just 20 patients, no control group. But if that looks good, then, you know, we move on to build bigger studies and, you know, incorporate things like neuroimaging. Um, and then, who knows where we go from there? Um, you know, one thing I wish we could do more of, and uh, we're kind of stuck with, is uh, doing these experiences in natural settings or outdoors. Because as I mentioned before, you know, being outdoors and, and living in nature for some time uh, when I was working for the Forest Service was very powerful for me in terms of my mental health. Um, and so, I, and of course, a lot of indigenous cultures use these substances in natural settings. But um, yeah, that's a little bit more difficult to do at the university. Um, we have been using virtual reality to take people outdoors during their sessions. At least that's something that, that I've incorporated in some of our studies, but, um, taking psilocybin and then using VR to have an outdoor experience. Yes. Wow, yeah. that's it's very exciting to hear your ideas, but you'll be, you'll hopefully, do you think there'd be a difference if you were able to have a, a nature, uh, experience? Without the VR, do you think there'd be a difference between the two? It's a great question. I mean, I wish we could, you know, that would be a great study to do. Can we take people outside versus putting them virtually outside versus just having them in the room with no VR? I think that would certainly uh, impact the, the experience, but in what ways, I don't know how. Very interesting. It's so exciting to hear you talk. It's very, very inspiring. How can people find out more about your work and what you're up to? Yeah, all of our work is at hopkinspsychedelic.org. And so we have a website. Uh, we have a newsletter that goes out every quarter. We try not to spam people, but, you know, four times a year, we'll let you know what we're up to and all of our new publications and the studies that we're working on. And I should also just, you know, uh, shout out my entire group of people that I work with because I'm one person, uh, you know, at Hopkins, but I don't do all of this stuff myself. I work with uh, a whole team of neuroscientists, psychologists, psychiatrists, research staff, nurses, you know, all of them um, working together to get all of this stuff done because it, it definitely takes uh, a lot of hands uh, to get this work done because it's very complicated. But um, yeah, all of our work collectively as the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research is available online at that hopkinspsychedelic.org uh, website. We have social media accounts at Facebook and Twitter and, and so on. And so people can follow what we're doing there as well. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Garcia and Romeo. Your work and your conversation is so exciting. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you today.